Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Twelfth Night Podcast by Rose City Shakespeare. This is Rachel Onstad, and I just finished last week uploading the last of the line-by-line commentaries on Twelfth Night that I did with several co-hosts, and throughout those episodes of the podcast, I talk about a lot of research that I had done without usually citing the books that the research came from. And, you know, obviously I made a, a podcast because I, I like the medium and also because I didn't necessarily want to write an academic book full of citations. Nonetheless, these ideas and concepts came from these books that I read. And I know I mentioned that I'm probably going to build a website at some point, and that probably will happen at some point. But in the meantime, I thought I would do this little episode of the podcast to let you know the books that I read and where they came from. So I'm going to uh, tell you the name of the book, and I'm going to read a little blurb off the back and tell you who the author was and the publisher and all that so that you can find these books for yourself. So one of the first books that I want to mention is a book called The Actor and the Text by Cicely Berry, who was the voice director for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and she has since passed on. This book was published by Applause Books. It has a new foreword by Trevor Nunn. Go, Trevor. And I mentioned at one point in the podcast about how I ask the actors to take a like a brief pause or make a change in emotional tone at the end of each line whether that line is prose or verse and I don't want anybody to think that this was my idea (laughs) whether you think it's a good idea or not it was not mine it was the genius work of Cicely Berry and she deserves all the credit for it. I found it incredibly helpful. Uh, You can find videos of her online, and there aren't a lot. I'll warn you, she loves the word fuck, so, you know, don't play it at top volume to your junior high school class. Watch it first. And here's a little blurb from the back of the book. Cicely Berry's words to the wise will speak to anyone who needs to speak his or her piece in any arena at sales meetings or religious revivals. Hmm. Berry's book will ensure that the speaker and the text gets heard accurately and with a true emotional range. Never again will one be accused of simply reading a prepared statement. Well, that's all true. Uh, But (laughs) it's also true that her technique is fantastic for Shakespeare, and that's where she derived it, and that's where I got that crazy idea from. Okay. We talk about a lot of dick jokes in Twelfth Night, and we did not really go over all of them, just enough to make John Bean blush at least once or twice an episode. There is a fun book called Shakespeare's Body by Eric Partridge, and it is published by, uh, it's a Dutton Everyman paper book. I'm looking for the 
looking for a copyright? Ah, 1960. You can find this book online pretty cheaply as a paperback. And on the back, the blurb says, This unusual and invaluable contribution to Shakespearean scholarship is a thorough examination of the body in Shakespeare's works from the literary, psychological, and lexicographical... <laughs> that's a mouthful. Lexicographical standpoints. Scholars and intelligent readers and interpreters of Shakespeare have always been aware of the large number of body references throughout his plays and poems, but even they probably have not fully comprehended the wealth of hidden allusion and multiple meanings in many seemingly obvious passages. And that is the truth. There's another excellent book. This one is harder to find and more expensive. So treasure it if you already own a copy. It is called A Dictionary of Shakespeare's Sexual Puns and Their Significance by Frankie Rubenstein. It is out of print. It is a Macmillan book. And it is copyright 1984. Oh my goodness, the print on this is so tiny. How am I going to read that? <laughs> ah, here we go. Rubenstein is far from innocent and comes to our aid with a lot of learning and is quite right to urge that not to appreciate the sexiness of Shakespeare's language impoverishes our own understanding of him. For one thing, it was a strong element in the, his appeal to Elizabethans, who are much less woolly-mouthed and smooth-tongued than we are. Hmm. For another, it has constituted a salty preservative for his work among those who can appreciate it an enlightening book. Oh, and here's another. That's a review, so let me come down here. This dictionary examines previously unnoted puns on the erotic attitudes and practices of the heterosexual and homosexual, the sexual deviant, oh dear, and the impotent. It includes scatological puns in their usually body contexts and ethnic puns as sexually snide then as now. It stresses the need to read and hear Shakespeare word by word, giving full weight to each one and asking why the line is so and not otherwise. It heightens our awareness of Shakespeare's words, their Elizabethan connotations, and their contemporary validity. For today's non-specialist audiences, the sexual puns are invitations to the fun of Shakespeare. And I'm not going to uh, opine on <laughs> the blurbs on the back of the book. What can you do? I don't know what they mean by sexual deviance. I don't believe in such a thing. Okay, moving right along. Uh, this book is, uh, we're going to pivot a little bit, and I'm going to talk about a couple books that have just kind of helped my scholarship of Shakespeare in general. And this wonderful book called The Shakespeare Wars, Clashing Scholars, Public Fiascos, and Palace Coups. I have only found it in hardback. You may be able to find it as a paperback. It was published by uh, Random House Publishing, 2006, and contrary to what the title sounds like, it is not 
a book about the wars in Shakespeare's plays, which I would find incredibly dull and boring. Instead, it is a book about the conflict and acrimony sometimes involved in studying Shakespeare's work and how the scholarship of Shakespeare and the personalities behind that scholarship have shaped our current opinion of Shakespeare. And it's, in a sense, it's really kind of an anthropological study of the culture of Shakespeare scholarship. And it, it, all of that sounds incredibly dry, but I, I'm telling you, it's one of the best books on Shakespeare I've ever read. If you can find a copy, nab it. It's still pretty cheap. It's obviously out of print. And Ron Rosenbaum is an incredible writer. He normally writes about, uh, about uh, Hitler. So he said he wrote this as a, a break from his rather depressing uh, normal, you know, somewhat depressing research that he had to do. And I will read one of the reviews on the back. The Shakespeare Wars, a conversation, a debate, a polemic, a memoir, a seduction, an ecstasy. Ron Rosenbaum takes Shakespeare personally, catapulting the plays out of the classroom and into a necessary urgency peopled by actors, directors, scholars, historians, contrarians, but mainly by Falstaff, Hamlet, Lear, and all the ever-living rest. On theater versus film, Rosenbaum is startling. On Shylock, he is fierce. On Harold Bloom, he is pugnacious. And on the contemporary power of Shakespeare's own voice, he is electrifying. A spectacular book, says Cynthia Ozick. Thank you, Cynthia, for that lovely review. Another fantastic book, and one that is happily still in print is Tina Packer's Women of Will. And this book was really helpful for me in terms of understanding how Shakespeare wrote his female-identified characters and how that writing changed over time as Shakespeare himself matured. Let's see. I'll read one of these blurbs. Packer puts together a comprehensive and compelling program that packs together a lot of relevant history and interpretation as well as a hefty dose of fine acting. Boston Arts Diary. Well, that's kind of uninspiring. Um, let's read another one. A joy to read. Dazzling. Destined to become one of the best-loved books about Shakespeare. Never to be filed into the bookcase, always accessible in case of need. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm not impressed by those blurbs. It's a fantastic book, but I, of course, put it in my bookcase with joy and pride. Anyway, fantastic book, very easy to find. Grab yourself a copy. Wonderful read, very inspiring. All right, now we're going to pivot a little bit to books that are more about Shakespeare's time scholarship that has uncovered research that we don't always necessarily look at when we're getting ready to put on a Shakespeare play or to study a Shakespeare play, and I recommend them highly. There's been a lot of silly 
debate about whether or not Shakespeare could read ancient Greek, all based on Ben Jonson's offhand comment at Shakespeare's funeral that he knew uh, small Latin and less Greek. And honestly, for all we know, Ben Jonson was just being a sarcastic ass like he always was and was speaking facetiously because clearly that wasn't true. But nonetheless, mountains, mountains of paper have been used to try to somehow say that Shakespeare couldn't read Greek or Latin. I find that incredibly difficult to believe given how he's lifted whole plots from ancient Greek and ancient Roman plays, and certainly Ovid. In any event, uh, this book, Shakespeare's Greek Drama Secret by Myron Stagman, talks about why that is a patently silly idea. It's published by Cambridge Scholars and was published in 2010. And this is a really accessible book. I think anybody interested in Shakespeare and classical theater would find this a very easy book to read. Let's see if I can find the blurb on here. Ah, Orthodoxy's dogma claims that there exists no direct connection between Shakespeare and the brilliant Greek drama of ancient Athens. The implausible dogma pontificates that Shakespeare never read Greek drama and certainly never utilized directly from such reading any of the materials of the Athenian playwrights. It is high time we recognize this dogma to be fanciful mythology. The dogma conceals Shakespeare's great formative secret. I don't think it's a secret personally, but makes good uh, makes good cover. Let's see, a little bit more. To begin with, Shakespeare had a complete grammar school education and Euripides, Sophocles, and Aristophanes were assigned reading. This book presents voluminous, striking, unmediated textual correspondences between the Greek and Shakespearean plays and illuminating historical background. Not only should this prove the Shakespeare-Greek drama connection, but that William Shakespeare became Shakespeare because of his mastery of the ancient Greek treasury of drama. And I agree. Okay. Another subject that I get into at great detail is the idea of the Elizabethan conception of how people fell in love, how people experienced madness, where it came from, that it was contagious, and all of this stuff. And again, I did not make any of this up. Uh, I'm going to start with a book that kind of has a real general view in a sense in that it's called White Magic and the English Renaissance Drama. It's by David Woodman. It was published by, it's out of print, I promise you, uh, Rutherford Madison Teaneck Fairleigh Dickinson University Press, Associated University Presses, Incorporated in Cranberry, New Jersey in 1973. It is, yeah, I think that's right. It says Woodman Dave, 1925. I'm guessing that's when he was born. I don't think that's when that was written. 
in any event, it's a wonderful book. Um, it doesn't address Shakespeare exclusively, and it's, in a sense, more applicable to a play like uh, The Tempest, but it's an interesting book nonetheless. And if you like that sort of thing, then I recommend it. Let's see if I can find a blurb for you. Primarily concerned with the treatment of white magic in English Renaissance drama and the probable responses of then-contemporary audiences to magic, this study explores some of the sources and the history of white magic and relates them to 16th and 17th century drama in England. Pretty good. Pretty good little blurb there. It's, it's not a big book. It's a little, kind of a little hard book. Uh, hard back book. It's not a hard book to read. Sorry. Then there is a real classic on the subject. And I'm going to tell you folks, this is a heavy slog. If you don't already have a background in Renaissance alchemy and a general esoteric literature and Hermes Trismegistus and all of that, you might not enjoy this book, but fortunately you can find it as a PDF online. The author did that on purpose. Uh, before he died, he made it accessible uh, in perpetuity. But I went ahead and bought a print copy just because it's easier to read that way. And it, it wasn't very expensive. Eros and Magic in the Renaissance by Ion P. Culliano. And I'm going to spell that for you. I-O-A-N, capital P, period, capital C-O-U-L-I-A-N-O. And it was translated by Margaret Cook. Thank you, Margaret. And it was published by University of Chicago Press. Um, it was originally published in France under the title Eris. Oh, I'm going to butcher this. Heiress of Meiji à la Renaissance, sorry, French speakers, uh, in 1984. And not only is this book fascinating, but the author is fascinating. He died under some rather mysterious circumstances. But here's a blurb from the back of the book. It is a widespread prejudice of modern scientific society magic is merely a ludicrous amalgam of recipes and methods derived from primitive and erroneous notions about nature. Eros and magic in the Renaissance challenges this view, providing an in-depth scholarly explanation of the workings of magic and showing that magic continues to exist in an altered form even today. Renaissance magic, according to Ion Culliano, was a scientifically plausible attempt to manipulate individuals and groups based on a knowledge of motivations, particularly erotic motivations. Its key principle was that everyone, and in a sense everything, could be influenced by appeal to sexual desire. In addition, the magician relied on a profound knowledge of the art of memory to manipulate the imagination of his subjects. In these respects, Culliano suggests magic is the precursor of the modern psychological and sociological sciences, and the magician is the distant ancestor to the psychoanalyst and the advertising and publicity agent. Really good book, people. But I'm warning you, 
Um, it's not a book to be approached lightly. You really like, you really need to like to get into the weeds and be happy uh, looking up words that you don't know, which I happen to enjoy. I think that's a load of fun, but I get it. Not everybody does. So there is a more accessible book, which I also enjoyed very much and is and has a different focus in that the author is talking about, in general, the resurgence of worship of Roman and ancient Greek deities during the Renaissance. And the author does a really good of explaining why that happened and where it happened and the material evidence of that. It's called The Pagan Dream of the Renaissance, and it's by Jocelyn Godwin. And it's published by Weiser Books, W-E-I-S-E-R. Copyright 2005. Uh, this, is a, this is a paperback, and I, I think it's unlikely that it's still in... Print, grab a copy if you can. Let's see if I can find a blurb. Uh. During the Renaissance, a profound transformation occurred in Western culture, fueled in large part by the rediscovery of the mythological pagan imagination. While the gods and goddesses were never entirely eclipsed during the, quote, dark ages, unquote, with the Renaissance, their presence once again became a powerful force in Western civilization. This highly illustrated book demonstrates how the pagan revival permeated every aspect of Renaissance life and culture and was a precursor to the contemporary neo-pagan movement. That blurb does not lie, people. Very good book. Now, this book is one of the books that really shifted my thinking about how magic and the occult was viewed by the Elizabethans. And to be clear, I already had a, a long background in occult studies as a historical subject. This book is by Francis Yates, and it's called The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age. And if you can only get one book, about occult philosophy in the Elizabethan age, I would recommend this one. She's really kind of the great-grandmother of this line of study, and you will find this book in the bibliography of almost every other book you read on the subject. It was first published in 1979, and it is currently published by Rutledge. I believe. Anyway, good stuff. And I can only read part of the blurb on the back because it's so covered in used book stickers. <laughs> oh, curse you. Curse you, academic bookstores. Anyway. It is hard to overestimate the importance of the contribution made by Dame Frances Yates to the serious study of esotericism and the occult sciences. 
To her work can be attributed the contemporary understanding of the occult origins of much of Western scientific thinking, indeed of Western civilization itself. The Occult Philosophies in the Elizabethan Age was her last book, and in it she condensed many aspects of her wide learning to present a clear, penetrating, and above all, accessible survey of the occult movements of the Renaissance, highlighting the work of John Dee, Giordano Bruno, and other key esoteric figures. The book is invaluable in illuminating the relationship between occultism and Renaissance thought, which in turn had a profound impact on the rise of science in the 17th and there the sticker covers the rest of it. I'm going to guess that it's a century there. Anyway, wonderful book. Pretty easy to find. I believe it's still in print. Obviously often used as a textbook. It's wonderful. And then segueing into a more focused look at how Elizabeth was viewed in that you know, pagan Renaissance framework, is another book by Francis A. Yates called Astraea, the Imperial Theme in the 16th Century. And this book discusses how Elizabeth I was considered a divine figure, a manifestation of the ancient Greek goddess of justice, Astraea, And let's see, published by <laughs> ARK, <laughs> ARK Paperbacks. <laughs> and this was copyrighted 1975. This edition was published in 1985. Frances Yates is that rare thing, a truly thrilling scholar. Her books on Renaissance history and thinking are alive with poetic instinct and inspired speculation, densely cross-patterned with recurring themes like one huge continuous tapestry. Well, that's all true. Ah, here we go. In Astraea, Frances Yates examines the images of Elizabeth I and the symbolism of her monarchy and its political use. She uses a new approach to history through imagery and the book includes many illustrations which are themselves historical. Another wonderful book. If you have any interest in the Elizabethan era, in Elizabeth herself, in paganism and the current neo-pagan movement, well worth the price of admission. There's a book called the Cult of Elizabeth by Roy Strong, Elizabethan Portraiture and Pageantry. This is published by Pimlico Press. And I think you can still get this book. It was written in 1977. Pimlico edition, 1999. I don't know. I, I was able to find it pretty easily. Again, a, another wonderful book and in it, he really goes into the physical manifestations of the Astraea cult, the, the art, the performances, and all of that. And here is, let's see if I can find a good blurb. 
No other woman in world history has been of such compulsive interest as Elizabeth Tudor. While the rest of 16th century Europe was subject to the bloodshed of religious war, Tudor peace, blah, 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 blah. All right. Central to that flowering was the enigmatic legend of the queen herself, a myth deliberately created and sustained over four decades by public spectacle and courtly chivalry, by private sonnet and official oration, the arts moving in concert in homage to an earthly deity. This is the thread which is followed in this book as the source and meaning of the most famous and potent of all Elizabethan pictures and pageantry are unraveled of Nicholas Hilliard's hypnotic young men among the roast try that again <laughs> young man amongst roses the famous Blackfriars procession the ermine and rainbow portraits of the queen the story picture of Sir Henry Unton the festivals of Ascension Day and the ritual of the garter in this fascinating and lavishly illustrated book, The Fruit of Nearly 20 Years of Research, Roy Strong fuses history, politics, religion, literature, and the visual arts into a unique revelation of what actually constituted the Elizabethan image. The illustrations, through choice of telling detail and illuminating juxtaposition, develop further the iconographic exploration of the Elizabethan era. And that's all true. So a special interest of mine has always been Jesters and Fools, and I have I have a lot of books on the subject. Maybe that should be a whole other podcast, I don't know. It's tempting. So I, I'm just going to list a couple of the most relevant books here. Because, <laughs> like I said, it could be a whole other podcast. Anyway. All right. One of the best books is called Fools Are Everywhere, The Court Jester Around the World by Beatrice Otto. My copy is in hardback. It's published by University of Chicago Press. It is copyright. Come on. I wish they would just put those in big numbers. Right at the top. 1996? Anyway, not easy to find. But I will read the blurb from the inside cover. In this lively work, Beatrice K. Otto takes us on a journey around the world in search of one of the most colorful characters in history, the court jester. Though not always clad in cap and bells, these witty, quirky characters crop up everywhere. From the courts of ancient China and the Mughal emperors of India, to those of medieval Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and the Americas. Throughout history, they have lampooned anything and anyone deemed sacrosanct. Religion and its representatives, self-important scholars, officials, and corrupt, lazy rulers. With a wealth of anecdotes, jokes, quotations, epigraphs, and illustrations, Otto brings to light little-known jesters, highlighting their humanizing influence on people of power and position. In the process, she sheds a more idiosyncratic, intimate light on some of the most important figures in world history. And then there's another book called Fools and Jesters at the English Court by John Southworth. And this I also have as a hardback. Uh, Sutton Publishing 
copyright 1998. No idea if this is still in print. Here's the blurb. Clowns, fools, comedians of one kind or another have been a feature of virtually every recorded culture in the history of civilization and made significant contributions to the development of early theater and literary drama. This is certainly true of Western Europe culture and nowhere more so than in England, where the fool in various disguises is found at the heart of popular dramatic activity from its earliest beginnings. The focus of this book is a particular type of fool, the court or king's fool, separated from the others by the special relationship he or she enjoyed with king or ruler as his personal retainer or her personal retainer. <sighs> the author takes on contemporary sources to present a unique rain-by-rain chronicle of the English court fool from their origins in Carolingian Europe and Celtic Ireland to Archie Armstrong gesture to James I. Among the topics covered are the innocence or natural fools, the evolution of the Tudor jester from their medieval antecedents, the fool's motley or customary wear, and biographies of Henry VIII's fool, Will Sommer, and Shakespeare's player fools, Will Kemp and Robert Army. Richly illustrated in color and black and white, fools and jesters at the English court throws new light on a subject which spans social and cultural history. All those interested in theatrical history and in the origins of an abiding aspect of popular culture will find this a fascinating and revealing book. And I concur. Okay. Now, moving along. There are a lot of really wonderful books about the roles of women in Elizabethan and Tudor society. I'm just going to list a couple of these here. One of them is called Better a Shrew Than a Sheep by Pamela Allen Brown. And this was published by Cornell University Press. First printing was 2003. And let's see if I can find a useful blurb on here. Ah, here we go. In a book that explodes the assumption that early modern comic culture was created by men for men, Pamela Allen Brown shows that just books, plays, and ballads represented women as laugh-getters and sought out the laughter of ordinary women. Disputing the claim that non-elite women had little access to popular culture because of their low literacy and social marginality, Brown demonstrates that women often bested all comers in the air... All comers in the arenas of jesting, gaining a few heady moments of agency. Brown argues that listening for women's laughter can shed light on both the dramas of the street and those of the stage. Plays from The Massacre of the Innocents to The Merry Wives of Windsor to The Woman's Prize taught audiences the importance of gossip's alliances as protection against slanderers, lechers, tyrants, and wife-beaters. Other jests, ballads, jigs, and plays show women reveling in tales of female roguery or scoffing at the perverse patience of Griselda. As Brown points out, some women found Griselda types annoying and even foolish. 
better be a shrew than a sheep. Wonderful, entertaining, enlightening book. Then there's The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women, A Social History by Elizabeth Norton. And this book, as you can imagine, has a more sort of direct historical focus on women's social status. It's published by Pegasus Books. And, oh, dang it, cannot find, <laughs> cannot find a date on it to save my life, but I think, ah, here we go go 2017 so this is a fairly recent book it's in paperback I'd, I'd imagine that you can find this book pretty easily and here's a little blurb the turbulent Tudor period never fails to capture the imagination but what was it truly like to be a woman during that era it conjures up images of queens and noble women in elaborate court dress of palace intrigue and dramatic politics but, if you were a woman, it was also a time when death during childbirth was rife, when marriage was usually a legal contract, not a matter for love, and the only education you could hope to receive was minimal at best. Yet, the Tudor century was also dominated by powerful and dynamic women in a way that no era had been before. Historian Elizabeth Norton explores the life cycle of the Tudor woman from childhood to old age, through women such as Elizabeth Tudor, Henry VIII's sister, Cecily Burbage, Elizabeth's wet nurse, Mary Howard, widowed but influential at court, and Elizabeth Barton, a peasant girl who would be landed, <laughs> sorry, a peasant girl who would be lauded as a prophetess. Interwoven throughout are explorations of everything from, from contraception to witchcraft, painting a portrait of the lives of queens and serving maids, nuns and harlots, widows and chaperones. Norton brings this vibrant period to colorful life in an evocative and insightful social history. Huzzah, Elizabeth Norton. I drew on that book quite a bit when talking about uh, what Mariah's status would likely have been during that era. Okay, now, in, I also did a great deal of research about uh, sexual identity, uh, queer identity, uh, homosexuality, bisexuality, and so on during the Elizabethan era, and one of the books that I really enjoyed was one called Homosexuality in Renaissance England. It's by Alan Bray. And it has been made by, sorry, it was published by Gay Men's Press. And copyright 1982. And here is the blurb. Writing from within the gay movement, Alan Bray reclaims a chapter in the buried history of homosexuality. In so doing, he explores a crucial period in the evolution of English society from a new and revealing angle. His approach is distinct both from the traditional catalog of homosexual celebrities and from those historians for whom homosexuality has only a marginal significance. Alan Bray's concern 
is with the changing ways homosexuality was interpreted and expressed in everyday life, which he shows as an integral part of the transformation from the medieval into the modern world. And another book that I found really helpful and interesting Homosexual Desire in Shakespeare's England, A Cultural Poetics by Bruce R. Smith. This was published by University of Chicago Press. Uh, copyright 1991. Our usual authorities on sexuality in early modern Europe moralists, lawyers, and doctors were concerned with what people did rather than what they imagined. In the most comprehensive study yet of homosexuality in the English Renaissance, Bruce R. Smith examines and rejects the assessments of homosexual acts in moral philosophy laws and medical books in favor of a poetics of homosexual desire. Smith isolates six different myths from classical literature and discusses each in relation to a particular Renaissance literary genre and to a particular part of the social structure of early modern England. In a society rigidly segregated by gender, Smith argues, homosexuality was not a label with which a man would distinguish himself from other men, but instead was part of a continuum of sexual expression that includes heterosexuality. Smith explores literary genre like romance and the corresponding social arrangements, such as holiday festivals, that encouraged men to act out, in fact, the desires that they imagined in fiction. Along the way, Smith accounts for many of the androgynes, drag queens, hermaphrodites, lecherous lords, and lascivious lads that populate Renaissance verse satire, epigrams, and stage comedy. After investigating how social class is eroticized in Marlowe's plays, the study culminates in an in-depth reading of Shakespeare's sonnets. Smith takes up the question of subjectivity and pursues the poet and his beloved as they move beyond sexual desire into sexual consummation and into emotional and artistic territory that was largely unmapped before Shakespeare. Uh, good stuff. Um, definitely what I would consider kind of a, a chewy book <laughs> in that you kind of, uh, you need to enjoy... Um, you need to enjoy that kind of academic deep dive into a subject, as it were. Excellent book. Uh, the book uh, Queer Philologies, Sex, Language, and Affect in Shakespeare's Time by Jeffrey Maston is uh, published by University of Pennsylvania Press, 2016. So this is a fairly recent book. For Jeffrey Maston, the history of sexuality and the history of language are intimately related. In queer philologies, he unpacks the etymology, circulation, transformation, and const... <laughs> Boy, what a sentence and constitutive power of key words within the early modern discourse of sex and gender, terms such as conversation and intercourse, fundament and foundation, friend and boy, that described bodies, pleasure, emotion, sexual acts, 
even to the extent possible in this period, sexual identities. Analyzing the continuities as well as differences between Shakespeare's language and our own, he offers up a queer lexicon in which the letter Q is perhaps the queerest character of all. So that's very uh, a very linguistics, language-oriented book. And uh, then we get into a couple books about how gender was represented in terms of the way people acted or dressed during Shakespeare's time. One of these is called Impersonations by Stephen Orgel. And I'll go ahead and spell that for you. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-O-R-G-E-L, Stephen Orgel. Impersonations, the performance of gender in Shakespeare's England. And this was published by Cambridge University Press, 1996, copyrighted. Why was England the only country in Europe to maintain an all-male public theater in the Renaissance? Stephen Orgel uses this question as the starting point of a fresh and stimulating exploration of the representation of gender in Elizabethan drama and society. Why were boys used to play female roles in drama? And how did such cross-dressing affect the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries? What was the place of women in the Renaissance theater, either on stage or in the audience? And what did society make of those women who significantly and successfully violated accepted gender boundaries? At once provocative and witty, lucid and stylish, impersonations will reshape our understanding of the Renaissance theater and make us rethink our own inadequate categories of gender, power, and sexuality. And the last but not least on that particular topic, so I mentioned a few times during the line-by-line -line commentary that people believed that the way you dressed determined the gender that you were, and a lot of this information came from this book, called Men and Women's Clothing, Anti-Theatricality and Effeminization, 1579 to 1642, by Laura Levine. This was uh, Cambridge Studies in Renaissance Literature and Culture. And oh, Looking for a date here, people. I don't see one. Cambridge University Press. Ah, 1994. Oh. And find the blurb here. Sometime in 1579, anti-theatricalist. Anti say that three times fast. Anti-theatricalist. 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 <laughs> Stephen Gosson made the curious remark that theater effeminated the mind. Four years later, in a pamphlet twice the size, Philip Stubbs claimed that male actors who wore women's clothing could literally adulterate male gender. Fifty years later, in a thousand-page tract which may have hastened the closing of the theaters, William Prine described a man whom women's clothing had literally caused to degenerate into a woman. How can we account for such fears of effeminization? What did Renaissance playwrights do with such a legacy? 
Laura Levine examines the ways in which Shakespeare, Johnson, and Marlowe addressed a generation's anxieties about gender and the stage and identifies the way the same magical thinking informed documents we much more readily associate with extreme forms of cultural paranoia. Documents like King James' Damalogely, dedicated to the extermination of witches. This book provides one of the most searching and subtle perspectives on the contributions and limitations of new historicism. Laura Levine is a critic of the first rank, and that little review was by Patricia Parker. Okay, and moving from that into uh, talking about the more material history of the Elizabethan era, I have a wonderful book called The Elizabethans at Home by Lou Emily Pearson. And this book talks about what it was actually like to live in the built environments of the Elizabethan era. Uh, it was published by Stanford Press, and I, I doubt very much that this is still in print. Grab a copy if you can. It's uh, copyright 1957. And any time that I'm getting ready to do a scene where it's kind of called out in the text what that room is, like in the kitchen scene, then I run to this book for useful information. The everyday life of the Elizabethans, homes, gardens, food, clothing, courtship, marriage, the rearing of children, has been recreated in this fascinating book to present a complete and detailed picture of the Elizabethan home. With warmth, humor, and understanding, the author brings us directly into the life of the people both poor and wealthy. We shall rise with them in the morning, sometimes stand among those who assisted at the intricacies of putting together very parts of their daily attire. Follow them through the multitudinous duties of the home, sit with them at the table, and join them at evening for family prayers. The Elizabethans were deeply concerned, lest the home lose both its influence as an institution opposed to disorder and its place as a refuge from the conflicts and confusion of their turbulent age. The wealthy Elizabethans' house was often the depository of an extensive art collection which the owner enjoyed for its intrinsic value and used for entertaining and impressing influential visitors. For the poor, the home was often a dubious shelter in which the family ate scanty meals and slept crowded on a hard straw mattress. But a self-respecting man, rich or poor, Recognizing the importance of the home and developing an answer to the important questions of how, in a time of rapid social change, one may at least try to live with dignity and grace. Here, in rich detail, is pictured the background out of which a great literature was written. Here, too, is described the way of life from which were drawn the characters of the Elizabethan plays in a book that will fascinate the scholar and the lay person alike. Oh, quite the treasure, that book. And moving a bit farther afield is a book I referenced several times during the podcast as The Sultan and the Queen. 
it was earlier published as This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World. It is, both books are exactly the same. They were written by Jerry Broughton, J-E-R-R-Y-B-R-O-T-T-O-N. And I'm not going to tell you the publisher because I don't know who published the book that you're probably going to find it under, under the other title. Uh, but here's a blurb. In 1570, when it became clear she would never be gathered into the Catholic fold, Elizabeth I was excommunicated by the Pope. This marked the beginning of an extraordinary English alignment with the Muslim powers who were fighting Catholic Spain in the Mediterranean and of cultural, economic, and political exchanges between England and the Islamic world of a depth not experienced again until the modern age. England signed treaties with the Ottoman port, received ambassadors from the kings of Morocco, and shipped munitions to Marrakesh. By the late 1580s, hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Elizabethan merchants, diplomats, sailors, artisans, and privateers were plying their trade from Monaco to Persia. This Orient Isle shows that England's relations with the Muslim world were far more extensive and often more amicable than we have appreciated, and that their influence was felt across the political, commercial, and domestic landscape of Elizabethan England. It is a startling, unfamiliar picture of a celebrated period in our national and international history. I love that book so much. You can find videos of him talking about it online, and I think uh, he's on the Folgers podcast also talking about it. Uh, relevant to that book is another one called Elizabeth Sea Dogs by Hugh Bicheno, H-U-G-H, and then Bicheno, B-I-C-H-E-N-O. How the English Became the Scourge of the Sea. And this was published by CPI Group. It looks like I had to get it out of England. It's copyright 2012. And this, this blurb is very short. Ah, here we go. It has become fashionable to condemn and even to grovel for the acts carried out over four centuries ago by a handful of English mariners. They were not nice people, it seems. They did what they did for profit and not in selfless service to their country. The queen they served was a receiver of stolen goods and many of her courtiers were accomplices to outright piracy. As Hugh Bicciano points out, like any Renaissance state, including the papacy, they were all nasty criminal enterprises. What he concentrates on instead is what made the English variant distinctive. Sea Dogs explains how a Corsair culture grew up spontaneously on either side of the Western English Channel long before Hawkins, Drake, and company were born and continued long after their deaths. It shows how the refusal of Spanish King Philip II to permit trade with his American dominions led to a Corsair assault that put at risk the flow of bullion he needed to finance his wars of religion. 
Finally, he hurled the might of his seaborne armada against the maddening English and was soundly defeated, providing England with one of the defining heroic episodes of her history. The Elizabethans, Hugh concludes, were not the paladins it suited the proud Victorians to portray, nor the villains denounced today by those with, oh dear, with a political moralizing agenda. Hmm. They were men and women of and for their time, and Hugh brings that period of our history into focus in his trademark engaging and provocative style. I, I think it's okay to call colonizers bad. <laughs> uh, I think a little, uh, little bit of morality in our agenda is a good thing. I don't know who wrote the blurb. But I disagree. All right, moving right along. Anyway, it's a fantastic book. Uh, and uh, the author makes it really clear that he thinks he thinks killing people and taking all their money is, is not a nice thing to do. And moving on from the Sea Dogs into one of the books that I do mention several times by name is called Age in Love. Shakespeare and the Elizabethan Court by Jacqueline Van Hout. Um, her last name is spelled V-A-N-H-O-U-T-T-E. I believe this is a fairly recent book. <laughs> ah, published by the Board of Regents of the University of Nebraska and danged if I can find the copyright <laughs> oh well it's a fairly recent book and here is a blurb The title Age and Love is taken from Shakespeare's Sonnet 138, a poem about an aging male speaker who, by virtue of his entanglement with the Dark Lady, vainly performs the role of some untutored youth. Jacqueline Van Hoot argues that this pattern of age and love pervades Shakespeare's mature works, informing his experiments in all the dramatic genre. Bottom, Malvolio, Claudius, Falstaff, and Antony all share with the sonnet speaker a tendency to flout generational decorum by assuming the role of the lover normally reserved in Renaissance culture for young men. Hybrids and upstarts, cross-dressers and shapeshifters, comic butts and tragic heroes, Shakespeare's old men in love turn in boundary-blurring performances that probe the gendered and generational categories by which early modern subjects conceived of identity. In Age and Love, Van, Van Hoot, Van Hout, I so apologize to the author for obviously mispronouncing their name. I'm going to go with Van Hout. Shows that questions we have come to regard as quintessentially Shakespearean about the limits of social mobility, the nature of political authority, the transformative powers of the theater, the vagaries of human memory, or the possibility of secular immortality come to indelible expression through Shakespeare's arty deployment of the age in love trope. Age in love contributes to the ongoing debate about the emergence of a Tudor public sphere 
building on the current interest in pre-modern constructions of aging and ultimately demonstrating that the Elizabethan court shaped Shakespeare's plays in unexpected and previously undocumented ways. I seem to be at the end of my giant stack of books here that I see before me. (laughs) Uh, The last one is a book called Passions and Tempers, A History of the Humors by Noga Arika. And that name is unfamiliar enough to me that I'm going to go ahead and spell it for you. The first name is N-O-G-A. The last name is Arika, A-R-I-K-H-A. I think this is probably a pretty old book. Uh, oh, not too bad. 2007, HarperCollins. A 2,500-year journey that explores the origins of humors in ancient Greece through the present day, combining history, literature, and philosophy in the tradition of the botany of desire. If you've heard of that book, which is also a good book. The humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and choler were substances thought to circulate within the body and determine a person's health, mood, and character. For example, an excess of bile was considered a cause of melancholy. The theory of humors remained an inexact but powerful tool for centuries, surviving scientific change and offering clarity to physicians. This one-of-a-kind book follows the fate of these variable and invisible fluids from their Western origin in ancient Greece to their present-day versions. It traces their persistence from medical guidebooks of the past to current health fads from the testimonies of medical doctors to the theories of scientists, physicians, and philosophers. By intertwining the histories of medicine, science, psychology, and philosophy, Noga Arika revisits and revises how we think about all the aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional selves. And I loved that book. Really good and, and very useful for any reading of any of Shakespeare's plays. Um, You know, obviously we don't necessarily know what Shakespeare thought of the humors, but we know what the Elizabethan people thought of the humors. And I go into this in a lot more detail when I talk about Midsummer Night's Dream, which will be the next production that we do a line-by-line reading of. I'm currently in the process of editing that audio drama, which, (laughs) yeah, hopefully, hopefully will be done, uh, you know, within a few months or so. It's a a time-taking process. I like to make them sound as good as possible and put in fun sound effects and stuff like that. So I hope you have enjoyed this little bibliography review of the books that I read for Twelfth Night. Obviously, I also read Twelfth Night, and I read a lot of different copies of Twelfth Nights that had notes. Um, There's a whole variorium of Twelfth Night that, you know, weighs a lot. (laughs) You know, now you can sort of find that stuff online pretty easily, but I love the old books. You know how it is. As a text, we used the Open Source Shakespeare website. I do that for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that it's public domain. 
The other is that it's searchable and free and anyone can download it or just read it online, read it on their phone. It makes life easy. So I love the open source Shakespeare website. And I guess that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, again, I want to emphasize that <laughs> there are a lot more books, but I think that these are some of the crucial ones for understanding a lot of the the points that I bring up so emphatically during the discussion. As far as plans for the podcast, for this particular podcast for Twelfth Night, I'm going to continue to interview people uh, based on the parts that they played in Twelfth Night. Coming up next is an interview with the wonderful actor who played Malvolio for me. I realized after editing however many hours of the podcast that I do not bring up at all, or barely at all, the audio production that you hear throughout the recordings. I only bring up the one that I staged, you know, in real life, in the before times, with an all-female identified cast. But I want to be clear that the production that you hear, this audio production, was a multi-gendered cast, and these were wonderful local actors that came to my recording studio in the before times and recorded this audio Shakespeare with me. Um, they did a phenomenal job. Some of them, in fact, most of them, uh, played more than a few parts. My actor, Christopher Keon, played both Antonio and Toby, which meant that he had to have a fight with himself, and he did a wonderful job. Uh, Chris, I'm sorry if I have uh, butchered the pronunciation of your last name. You aren't alone. In any event, I love all those actors so much and so enjoyed the editing process and getting to hear their voices over and over again, repeat these beautiful lines, putting sound effects in. It was the first time that I had ever done an audio drama, and I learned a whole lot from it. So I hope you all enjoyed the audio drama portion of this podcast, and I'm looking forward to making more. And of course, I hope you enjoy and are able to find some of these wonderful books that I listed for you here. Have a wonderful day and happy reading! <laughs>